0: music mm-hmm. Hey folks, Mackenzie Lambert here, your host for Mac in the Movies, where I look at everything from art house to grindhouse. Today we have the first of a special two-parter episode, looking at the films of director Josh Becker. Becker, a frequent collaborator with genre luminaries like Sam Raimi, Rob Tabbert, and Bruce Campbell. On this half, we'll be looking at the films he directed during the 1980s and 1990s. Those films include Thou Shall Not Kill Except, Lunatics A Love Story, Battle the Big Tuna, Running Time, and If I Had a Hammer. I'll be reviewing those films, spliced with excerpts from my recent interview with Mr. Becker. Plus, there will be another installment of What a Year with my good friend John. We will share our top 10 films of the year 2001, and there is another digital copy giveaway from the kind folks at Paramount Pictures. Before we get into the films, let's get into a little bit of Josh Becker's background. He was born on August 17, 1958, in Detroit, Michigan. He made a number of Super 8 films alongside Sam Raimi and Bruce Campbell. At 17, he worked several jobs while trying to get his foot in the door in Hollywood. He served as a production assistant and sound recordist for Sam Raimi's Evil Dead. This paved the way for his first film, Thou Shall Not Kill Except, which years earlier was prototyped by the short film, Strikers War. I asked him about when he realized he wanted to be a filmmaker. When was the moment you realized you wanted to be a filmmaker? Was it a particular film or a scene? That's uh, a good question. That's a good
1: question. Mm -hmm. Hey, all these years, I'm 62, you know, and I don't think anyone ever asked me that. Yes, all right. Because initially, of course, I you know, I wanted to be an actor, Because I didn't know there was anything but actors. Mm -hmm. I didn't know there were people behind the scenes. You know, I saw Oliver when I was, like, nine years old and went, you know, why should that nine-year-old kid be the star (laughs) of a gigantic (laughs) fucking movie and I can't be? You know, other than he's cute and he can sing. (laughs) Okay, well, you know, I can't do that, but... And, uh... But it seems to me, okay. So that would have been nine years old, because that—that was 1968. Cause I turned 10. But I would say it would probably in the next two years it was junior high school, where it all came to me in a flood of like, no, no, no. It's directors that run the show.
0: We got movie night.
1: Light Then God created man, and he gave him ten commandments. Amongst them thou shalt not kill. <laughs> but evil forces arose ignoring God's commandments and wreaked havoc on
0: the world.
1: of god and man must be put aside thou shalt not kill except nobody moves
0: i
2: said no No!
0: jack Stryker is a vietnam veteran who comes back home after being wounded he tries to return to a life of normalcy with his girlfriend sally Soon, a cult led by a Manson-like, self-envisioned Christ Messiah terrorizes Stryker's family. Stryker has no choice but to resort to violence to take them all down, with the help of his combat buddies. Thought Shall Not Kill Except is a film cut from the same cloth as Walter Hill's Southern Comfort. You have hardened soldiers battling emboldened zealots. It's a simple but effective story... It is a great build-up to the climax where the soldiers come face-to-face with the cult and its bloody violence from there on. Josh Becker followed Sam Raimi's idea for fundraising. This started out as Striker's War, a Super 8 film shot to raise money. Not unlike Sam Raimi making Within the Woods to raise money for Evil Dead. Irvin Shapiro was the distributor who offered the title change from Striker's War to Thou Shall Not Kill Except*. Shapiro was a co-founder of the Cannes Film Festival. He was responsible for distributing classics like Cabinet of Dr. Caligari, Battleship Potemkin. He was Josh Becker on his experience working with Mr. Shapiro. Uh, this uh, Irving Shapiro was the distributor uh, for the film. In fact, he was the one that came up with the uh, Thou Should Not Kill Accept title. He was the agent, the overseas
1: sales agent.
0: Ah, okay. Uh, I, I know he has experience with like, the old films. He came up Little with so Evil
1: Dead movie. as well.
0: Oh, yeah, yeah, because there was the joke, well, uh, if it's the Book of the Dead, they think they're going to have to read for 90 minutes. Uh, what was right. Your ex- what was your experience with Mr. Shapiro? Oh, he
1: was great. He was one of the great, great men of the film industry. He had started really early. You know, he was a founder of the Cannes Film Festival and the whole thing, you know. He was 85 when we were dealing with him. And uh, uh, he sold both of those pictures uh Evil Bed, and uh, Thou Shall Not Kill Except, but he changed the titles of a lot of pictures that came through. That was his, you know, thing.
0: Yeah, I mean, with his experience, I'm sure he has a better idea of what titles will sell and what uh, titles don't. It
1: sold better as Thou Shall Not Kill Except. He said it'll it'll, tra- it'll translate exactly <laughs> into different languages, and he was right.
0: In the supporting role, you have Tim Quill, the blacksmith in Army of Darkness, as one of Striker's buddies. Fans will recognize Ted Raimi as one of the cult minions, but the biggest scene stealer is Sam Raimi as the cult leader. He was one of the major carryovers from the Super 8 to the main feature. Here's Josh Becker on Sam as an actor. Sam Raimi, I I would say is very underrated as an actor uh, from his (laughs) uh, his cameos. He's committed. He's committed. That's what I was going to ask you. Uh, With Sam playing the cult leader in both the uh, 8mm prototype as well as the feature film, was it just a case of, okay, Sam, do your thing, or was there some direction that he needed for this character?
1: Uh, No, it was get out of his way. (laughs) No, in fact, no matter what I said to him, the first, on the feature version, first thing I said to him was, we paid $150 for this wig. <laughs> so, like, be nice to it. And the first thing he did was tear a hunk, <laughs> reach up, I can just tore a hunk of the wig out. And uh, fucked it up. And we had to put it back together with whatever glue. And, uh, no, I, I, I had no idea what Sam would do, <laughs> except that I had shot it in super eight four years earlier. So I had a kind of an idea, but no, he doesn't, he didn't need any direction for
0: me. <laughs> That's amazing. Sam has his share of acting credits, cameos in William Lustig's maniac cop, John Carpenter's body bags, John Landis's innocent blood. He really shines in supporting roles as he does here in thou shall not kill except, But also Scott Spiegel's Intruder and Mike Binder's Indian Summer. There is a special edition of the film released by Synapsis Films. There's a ton of special features on it. If you try to find a copy of the Anchor Bay release, don't expect to find one at a reasonable price. This film is a lot of fun and worth giving it a watch.
1: This is no horror movie, it's a love story.
0: Anybody that don't come out of their apartment
1: for six months got to be crazy. Hank has a few problems. Nancy's got troubles all her own. His are imaginary spiders, psycho rap musicians, and big, long needles. Hers are a little more real. It was truly love at first sight. This
0: is hell now, right?
1: No, the tin foil
0: keeps
1: the heat out. <laughs> Only no one told Nancy. Also with a little tinfoil and a whole lot of courage. I've got to get her back. Hank's going to tackle the real world. (laughs) Lunatics, a
0: crazy kind of love story starring Theodore Raimi and Deborah Foreman. Hank is a recluse with paranoid schizophrenia. For the past six months, he has hidden his apartment for fear of doctors and spiders. Nancy is a woman who believes when she tries to help others, she curses them to certain doom. One night, Hank uses his phone to call a talk line, but due to a glitch, he ends up calling Nancy while she is in a phone booth. He encourages her to come to his place, but will things work out for both of them? A love story is a quirky, charming romantic comedy, a nice contrast from his previous film, a violent action movie. Normally, a genre I can't stomach, but director Josh Becker takes the film in an absurdist direction with stop-motion spiders and hallucinations of mad doctors, that it's a captivating entry in a mundane category. Composer Joseph DeLuca offers a hip-hop-inspired score that is very different from his orchestral work for the Evil Dead films and Thou Shall Not Kill Except... Bruce Campbell plays the asshole ex boyfriend of Nancy, who abuses her and eventually runs out on her. Campbell also plays the Doctor terrorizing Hank. Deborah Foreman is great. I loved her in Waxwork and Sundown Vampires in Retreat. Ted Raimi gets a chance to be in a lead role. Becker had nothing but great things to say about Ted. Um, it was great seeing Ted Raimi in a lead role, um, and he had this great chemistry with Deborah Foreman. Uh, did Ted take to the lead role quickly, or was there kind of some hesitation because he was mostly known for being a supporting char- uh, character actor for, so, for a while?
1: And Ted's a ham. I mean, once again, you know, he's, he's completely up to anything you throw at him. I mean, I had him for the lead. He had the lead on one Xena episode, which I directed. It was like an emergency pull-it-out-of-the-back-of-the-drawer episode when Lucy Lawless broke her hip. Ooh. Yeah, she was uh, appearing on the Jay Leno show, and they thought, Hey, won't it be funny if they get we get her on a horse riding up to Burbank Studios oh. and... And the horse slipped and broke broke her hip. And I was just about to start shooting a new episode. And they went, Oh yeah, that's right, you can't have Lucy. I went, Oh, that's fascinating. So they had the script of, Well, we have this script just in case Lucy, you know, got hit by a car. We have this one that stars Joxer. So uh, so I had the one Joxer episode.
0: <laughs> Uh, that that's that's I guess Ted Ramey is always the you can't, you can't go wrong with him in as the ace in the hole he's he's always got well the Ted's
1: been in my movies since you know, we were kids I mean I made him one of my early Super Eights Ted's yeah you know I'm mean, Ted goes back to the mid early seventies in these movies
0: yeah the the Super Eights yeah
1: yeah way into the Super Eights <laughs> we could always get Ted. <laughs>
0: In the words of Bruce Campbell, when all else fails, cut the Ted. Lunatics A Love Story is a hidden gem that more people need to check out. Sadly, Amazon only has a VHS available. You can find versions of this movie for free on YouTube. Uh, this one is overdue for a DVD release. Take a hint synopsis.
1: These seem to be landing, most of them, this evening. Nice product. With a reasonably full tank of caballitos... We head to Socorro Island, second in the Rivea-Hiedo Island chain, in search of the big tuna. Once anchored at Socorro, we carefully tie our tuna hooks, test the knots, then nose hook one of our caballitos. The bait is then cast as far away from the boat as possible, and to the waiting tuna. Our first visitors are sharks. Now I feel the familiar sensation of a tail beating on my line. That can only be one thing. A tuna.
0: Battle of the Big Tuna is a documentary that chronicles a nine-day fishing trip in Cabo San Lucas, Mexico. This movie is available on Amazon, yet there is a one-month waiting period for the order of the actual film to be processed. Meanwhile, there is also a way to order a DVD-R. Here's the conversation Mr. Becker and I had on the film. What drew you to covering uh, this uh, a bit of, a, of a tuna fishing?
1: Rob Tappert, producer of all the Evil Dead's Hercules, Xena, etc., as a fisherman, and wanted a video uh, to start a video series, which he got three of them done, uh, of you know Rob Tappert's high adventures of uh, big sea fishing. And... So he kind of assigned it to me, and this was when we were just going into pre-production on Lunatics. And I went, okay, you want me to make a fishing video for you? Sure. <laughs> so, And it stayed on the market. The other two, he made three of them. The other two are not on the market, I'll have you know. Were there well, any- Rob knew everything. All I had to do was photograph it.
0: Oh, all right, so that was actually a pretty easy job, man. All right
1: well other than going to sea for 9 days on a big sea <laughs> adventure where i'll never i would never go in a boat again in my life <laughs> this is 300 miles out into the ocean
0: a little of nowhere okay yeah that's that's kind of scary
1: you know, we left from Cabo San Lucas Mexico and went to these islands where you actually can't even go anymore they're so restricted but these were like that's where the biggest tuna in the world go And uh so we end up catching it's not Rob, it's someone else on the trip catches a two hundred pound tuna. Interesting. Which is big as a human big as a fat human.
0: is fresh out of jail after a five-year sentence. He meets back up with his buddy Patrick, and they plan on pulling off a nice job. The warden of the prison Carl was housed in runs a money laundering scheme. Carl had Patrick run recon on the laundry building. Even before the heist begins, every step goes wrong. The getaway driver bails out, and the substitute is a junkie. The truck gets a flat. The junkie has no watch, so another crewman, Buzz, has to give him his. Buzz's eyeglasses break on him, and then there is the heist itself. Mr. Mueller, the head of the laundromat, is having a cardiac arrest. A security guard gets shot. The type of safe isn't the one Carl said. The wardens and his men arrive, taking out Buzz and wounding Carl. The junkie and the van are missing. Carl is on the run, and his only option is to meet up with an old flame of his, Janie. Running time is what I would expect for a Grand Theft Auto movie. A heist that takes place in real time with no visible camera cuts, inspired by Alfred Hitchcock's rope and predating Sam mendez's nineteen seventeen by twenty two years. Here is the trick to filming such a challenging concept, according to Josh Becker. you shot the film to have that real time feel with few visible cuts uh what was the how did you mean no
1: visible ones that i you know yeah. some are there yeah. in spite of me. <laughs>
0: Uh, How do you pull off such a tricky concept? Like, it's like, how detailed is the planning for shooting the film to make it look like it's in real time? Well,
1: I had to know where the camera was at every single point, you know, in the script. And I had to, the key thing was writing the script in a way that could actually be shot in real time. You know, you couldn't do that with most scripts because suddenly it cuts and you're in a different place. Mm -hmm. Well, this had to all be contiguous, Um, and he did it too, and uh, I felt uh, in 1917, uh, I thought it worked better, I thought I was using it to more purpose Mm -hmm. in uh, running time than he did in, Sam Mendes did in 1917, but I was making more out of it.
0: Much like with Lunatics, A Love Story, Joseph Leduca does a change-of-pace score. What makes this score effective is that it isn't wall-to-wall. After the opening titles, the next music sequence isn't until 20 minutes with uh, the heist begins. Here's Becker on Leduca's work for Running Time. Uh, Joseph Leducas' hip-hop score was actually a nice change of pace, as was his score for Running Time, uh, just because it's not grand or it's, it, it, it fits the movie, and that's, I think, one of Leducas' great talents. Is uh, and, uh, How much of a collaboration were those scores uh, along with Mr. Leduca, or was that just Joe going on his own intuition?
1: Well, Joe's a good friend of mine, and he scored everything of mine up to, he didn't do my last picture, Warpath, but he did uh, Morning, Noon, and Night before that. Um, but, uh, Joe, uh, uh, there's always discussions leading into what the score will be. And, uh, Joe always knows why he's going to write <coughs> the score he's going to write. And in, uh, you know, like the in- running time, I-, I thought, I didn't even question it. I thought it would be a bebop ja- jazz score. <laughs> And he's a Bebop jazz kind of guy, Jazzy Joe. Mm-hmm. And uh and he said in his own snotty jazzy way, <clears throat> Your movie doesn't deserve a jazz score. I go, Oh, it doesn't wow. does I go, Ouch, yeah. Really? I mean, but it's I've made a black and white film noir. Mm-hmm. He goes, Oh, 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 it's black and white, but it's not film noir. Hello, it takes place during the day. <laughs> I went, well yeah, it does. <laughs> I mean, yeah. He goes, You get rock and roll. Like distorted rock and roll. With a but and he added, I love this, with a song at the end.
0: Campbell heads a cast full of great character actors. Jeremy Roberts played Patrick, Carl's best friend. Roberts has hundreds of roles in TV movies. National Lampoon's Christmas Vacation, People Under the Stairs, and The Mask are just a sample of his credits. The lovely Anita Barone took on the role of Janie. Barone appeared in such TV gems as Quantum Leap and Seinfeld. She was a regular on the Jeff Foxworthy sitcom and Ally McBeal. William Stanford Davis, Art LaFleur, Bridget Hoffman, and Dana Craig round out the side parts. In between my interview with Mr. Becker and this recording, I had a chance to watch the Synapses Blu-ray for in time, and the film does look gorgeous. I remember seeing the Anchor Bay edition and being impressed more with the concept than the execution. Now the film is beautiful, but Synapses do need to be called out for some shady stuff.
1: Running time. It just, it looks great. And it, plus it's got, aside from the commentary, which is a holdover from the Anchor Bay, um... There's a uh like a twenty twenty five minute interview with Bruce that I had absolutely nothing to do with and saw for the first time when I bought I actually had, had to buy the fucking D V D. They didn't give <laughs> And uh Bruce does a really nice I mean he, it's gotta be within the last year. Uh <laughs> which is good. It'll give me a good final story. <laughs> so I call him up about four months ago synapse i go are you ever going to release that goddamn movie <laughs> and they go ah, it's it's slated for release March whatever it was
2: mm-hmm.
1: you know march 5th so yes it's coming out i went well all right fine i mean i just wanted to know because if you're going to get to me for an interview it's getting pretty late they go oh well we don't need to get to you uh,
0: that's i go what do you
1: mean they go we got a really good interview with bruce I go, uh-huh. They go,
0: it's enough. Aww. <laughs> uh, that, 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 I'm, I'm just going, that pisses me off.
1: <laughs> I went, well, all right. I felt like Jack Benny.
2: <laughs> <laughs>
1: well. Um, and then I saw Bruce, and it's actually, it's like, it's fine. He's so good at doing that.
0: Running Time pulls off a good concept and an engaging story. This is one worth seeking out and taking it in. This is my all time favorite Josh Becker film.
1: If I had a song.
0: is an inspiring musician still living with his parents. He has nothing going for him. That is until he meets Lorraine, a local activist. She invites him to an open mic night that is meant to bring attention to a fundraiser for the Springfield Five legal representation. There appears to be strong support for the cause. Also, Phil's performance nets him a lot of attention. The next night, Lorraine is getting ready for the Springfield Five fundraiser, Unfortunately, that same night, the Beatles debut on Ed Sullivan. Right off the bat, this film resonates to the current social media climate. The film perfectly captures the armchair activism that is all over Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. And this film was made in 1999. You have people who tout caring about various causes, but are they genuine in their intentions, or is this just to get brownie points and clout? You have one beatnik at the open mic who is just chasing tail while pretending to care about social issues. This gives the film a true longevity.
1: Well, I don't, you know, it never stuck to start with. So it's not that it, it's just because it's a period movie that, you know, I don't think it ages because it was meant to take place exactly that weekend you know, in 1964 when the Beatles were on at Sullivan. So it knew, exi- you know, if, if, if nothing else, the movie knows exactly why it's happening at that moment.
0: If I Had a Hammer used to be available on Mr. Becker's website for purchase, but not recently. There is a streaming version on the IMDb page for the film. Despite the sound sync being off by seconds, the image is still clear. The audio is fine quality-wise. Brett Beardsley took on the lead role of Phil Buckley. He plays up the slacker nature of the character. I thought he looked familiar, and then I saw he was in The Dead Hate the Living as the makeup effects guy. This was the only film role for Lisa Records as Lorraine, the passionate activist. She kills it in the scene where she's the only one at the Springfield Five fundraiser. That feeling of betrayal is palpable in her performance. Mark Sawicki and Susan Reno stand out as the socially ignorant Buckley parents. Reno is a TV actress working as current as 2020. Sawicki has a grand career as a visual effects artist, having worked on The Terminator, Honey, I Shrunk the Kids, Adam's Family Values, From Dusk Till Dawn, X-Men, Moulin Rouge, and dozens of others. If you can get past the audio issues on the IMDb page, If I have a Hammer is an effective drama while a period piece that manages to commentate on recent trends. Even with relatively unknowns in the cast, that doesn't make the film any less engaging. This may be my second favorite Josh Becker film. And that finishes this half on the films of Josh Becker. The second half will be uploaded on Friday, May 21st. Uh, The next episode will feature Alien Apocalypse, Harpies, Morning, Noon, and Night, and Warpath. Let me know your thoughts on the films covered so far on social media or in the comments. Up next, we have another installment of What a Year. Here, John and I share our top 10 films for the year 2001. <laughs> Folks, Mackenzie Lambert here, host for Making the Movies. Uh, this is going to be another installment of What a Year, and joined as always uh, with John Cleveland. Hi, everybody. Uh, this one, we're going to look at the the year of 2001, which uh, unfortunately was defined by a singular event, but uh, we're not going to dwell on that. We're just going to go ahead and try and look at just find some of the best of what happened that year and uh, movies and just seeing what ones stood out among the, the crop. Yeah, because there was a
2: lot of there's a lot of really stellar films that year.
0: Mm-hmm. Uh, the first and, year
2: of the new millennium.
0: Yep. Yeah, Yeah. because it doesn't start in 2000. It actually starts in 2001. Mm-hmm. Yep. All right. Uh, John, let's go ahead and we'll go through your honorable mentions and then your full top 10 list.
2: Okay. Well, I, again, for anyone who's listened to any of our other lists we've done, I've scoured all 4,177 <laughs> movies that were released that year, according to IMDb. And I found a bunch of great ones. I found my top 10, and I have a couple that just weren't able to really get in there because the top 10 is loaded with some some personal favorites of mine. So to some honorable mentions, I wanted to bring out The Score, which is one of the greatest heist movies of all time.
0: Didn't you read um, Edward Norton?
2: Just so good. Mm-hmm. Edward Norton is mentally, his character, his character plays someone who has a mental handicap, mm-hmm. and it's proof of how good of an actor he is that he can do that. And it's he's done it. I believe he is a. I don't believe his character has a mental incapacity. I believe he is a person playing a character who has one. The layers to his his uh, acting Charade. ability in that movie are just are amazing.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: All right. So the score. Also, uh, oh, by the way, a fun note. I also like to point out that the, the something about the score that we didn't just mention. It's got Marlon Brando in it. <laughs> Like no big deal.
0: This was after this was after Island of Doctor Moreau, right? When he was, you know, the yes, uh, yeah. The I think this was his last film. Okay,
2: I think this scores his last film. I love the Island Doctor Moreau. I really don't see the hatred that <laughs> that movie has. Yes. I really don't. I loved it. Anyway, uh, another honorable mention: Saving Silverman, a personal f- uh, favorite comedy of mine, highly underrated. Jack Black, amazing. Um, oh, what's his name from American Pie? The lead actor. Oh, uh, Jason Biggs. I know there's Steve Zahn Jason Biggs. No, Jason, it's Jason Biggs. He's just, in my opinion, Saving Silverman, he's so much better than Saving Silverman. If you like that kind of screwball comedy stuff, I highly suggest it. It's great. Or if you're just a big fan of um, Arlie Innery, is also in it too. Yeah. Is a comedy. Um, Yeah. Uh, But anyway, uh, moving on. Uh, Not Another Date or Not Another Teen Movie, which is one of the best satire films of all time. And I will fight you over that fact. Um, it's hilarious and I've seen it so many times and it's still funny. Um, I, I, I have to talk about Zoolander. It just has to get brought up. Zoolander was, most people are probably going to say Zoolander was probably the funniest movie of that decade or up there. I don't agree with that statement, but it's, it's up there and it's full of hilarious things. It's the movie that I think made Ben Stiller a household name. And it also made Will Ferrell a household name. It, It cemented it over his roles in Saturday Night Live.
0: Oh, and there's that um, one that one scene that always I I, I always see pop up every uh, once in a while. It's like, what is this? A school for ants? Yes, There's the meme. <laughs> yes,
2: um, they're breakdance fighting. Uh, my friends died in a freak gasoline fight accident. Um, <laughs> the essence of water is wetness. Uh, and then the. Uh, there's Blow, but that finally the one movie I it couldn't make my list, and I know a lot of my nerd friends are gonna hate me for it. Lord of the Rings, the Fellowship of the Ring. Uh, arguably what, the greatest yeah, arguably the beginning of the greatest cinematic trilogy of all time.
0: I I I made it through Fellowship of the Ring, and after that I just honestly didn't feel a need to see any of the other Lord of the Rings films. It just didn't it wasn't my kind of fantasy film
2: really i mean i i'm not a tolkien giant i'm not a giant token fan i think he's way more problematic and gets way more credit for the the stuff he did but i do have to say lord of the rings one two and three are probably the best trilogy of all time uh outside of evil dead
0: i no, not know just give me willow or give me crawl give, give me give me that cheesy 80s fantasy film any day for lord of the rings
2: <laughs> fair enough fair enough so i uh, well you got to give lord of the rings credit though it changed the way oh, yeah. film oh late. yeah
0: Oh, yeah, yeah and it, so. it made New Zealand the go-to place to make movies.
2: Oh, yeah. Also, you wouldn't have a, a Marvel Cinematic Universe either if it wasn't for movies like Lord of the Rings. No. Movies that showed people will sit there for a movie that took three hours. You know, mm-hmm. they, they will sit there for that. They will sit there knowing this isn't the only thing. You can tell some of a story. You don't have to tell all of it. Yeah. Yep. So, all right. Into, into the top ten. Into Number ten. A uh, bit of a tonal shift too. Uh that. This is probably the l- l- uh, of my top 10. This is maybe the least known. I want to say this is the least known film of my top 10 bully. It's a hard drama, super realistic uh, drama about a group of teens. I want to say in Florida uh, who go through the trials and tribulations of being like unsupervised suburban kids and, in, in kind of a nicer off neighborhood per se get into some troubles and stuff, and eventually that degrades into some bad things. Brad Um, Renfro, right? Yeah. Yeah. Um, I'm not going to spoil it, because if you like dramas, uh, I highly suggest you check it out. Uh, You know, teenagers and 20-year-olds just putting in really great performances. Um, It's not an easy watch. I'm not going to lie. There is some uh, intense stuff going on in the movie, and especially the end. Uh, The thing that makes it, like, just hit home more. It is almost entirely based on a true story. They only change names in some certain little events, but yeah. So if you, if you know anything about bully or if you don't, I highly suggest you, you check it out. Uh, just be aware. I wouldn't sit down with the wife and kids and, or, or the husband and kids and, and think it's a fun, cheery thing to do on a Saturday night. I definitely want to watch it in a movie. You're just interested in the really in-depth character portrayal of the descent a group can make when groupthink takes over. So, and again, based on a true story. So, uh, continuing the uh, somewhat moody uh, tone from uh, 10 is number 9, which I didn't even realize when I wrote it in, uh, which is ironically called Session 9. It's one of the best horror films I've ever seen. And by far, it's one of the best unknown or lesser known horror films I've ever seen. Uh, The premise of Session 9, for those who don't know, A man who's basically, this is, he owns a restoration company that can like take asbestos out of buildings. This is his last opportunity. He's on, you know, he's borrowed too much money to do this and all this stuff. He's He gets a job taking the asbestos out of an old psychological, uh, psych psych ward, basically, an old loony bin, as it were. (laughs) And stuff that's supposedly haunted, he doesn't even have time to deal with that. But stuff starts happening. Nothing overt. It's not like, oh, he walks through and, you know, sees a ghost walk through a wall. Nothing like that. But the reason it's called Session 9 is one of his workers comes across, he spends his lunch breaks in one of the uh, rooms he finds that he's supposed to be cleaning and stuff. It was uh, one of the, the doctor's rooms, and he's recording sessions with a patient who's going through levels of like regressive therapy. And every time he goes through, it gets weirder and creepier and creepier. And obviously, it builds up to his listening to the recording of Session 9. All while things are happening, and then the after everything, the end, the way the movie ends is just perfect. It makes so much sense. It draws everything together, and it's just incredibly well written. And it's one of those movies that, like, there's no way this movie costs more than fifty thousand dollars to make. So it's proof that you can actually make these movies with not, you know, not billions of dollars. You can make incredibly good, riveting horror films for. Not that much money, all in all. Nice. Highly suggest it to any horror fan. All right. Number eight. It's a tonal shift, obviously. Uh, I really like this movie. It, it's one that it was it was super popular the year it came out, and then I feel like it just got forgotten about, one of those, you know, oh, that was cool. A month later, no one remembers it. <laughs> the Musketeer, which was came out in the wake of um, The Matrix, so a lot of wire foo. It's mm-hmm. basically a retelling of the classic three musketeers story except in the idea that they're using somewhat similar of the wire foo per se action sequences obviously that the matrix you know brought to America as it were um it's just awesome fight scenes a real fun story and it's just fun it's you know nothing more than that
0: okay did you ever see it uh isn't it Paul W.S. Anderson
2: uh or am I think I don't or am I think thinking? so okay I just based on his style in my head, I don't think so, but I honestly don't know who directed it off the top. It's not really a I don't claim that the movie's well directed or well acted or anything. I just claim it's fun to watch. Okay. Tim Tim Ross the bad guy and Tim Ross awesome. Oh so yeah. That. Uh, yeah. So it didn't do super well either. Like I, I think it made its budget back, but you know, it wasn't breaking any box offices. It's one of those where, like again, all I remember a lot of people being like, that movie was awesome. Two months later, no one remembered it. So mm. it just is what it is. Okay. All right. Number seven. Uh, This this one has. It's fun. I love it. It's another one that probably no one remembered after like a month after it came out. But for me, it holds a special place in my heart because all my friends back in high school we went to go see it like a bunch, and when it was in the movie theaters together. So you know, it's got that nostalgia kick for me. It's out cold. Um, just a stupid buddy comedy, bunch of drunks, uh, skiboarding movie, snowboarding movie it's Jack just Zach zach Gall- it's the yeah. movie that made me know who he was him and a bunch of other actually lesser known actors um are in that uh but it's it's hilarious it's dumb comedy which it's not the only dumb comedy that i you know saving silverman was another one yeah. not another team movie this but it's just so much fun i highly suggest it if you love snowboarding watch it it's it's worth it and if you just like dumb comedies just check it out it's a lot of fun Plus, Weezer's song it did a song for it that's actually pretty good, too. Right. Just remember that one. Yeah. All right. Number six, uh, another horror film or drama. I'm going to say horror film that uh, doesn't get enough uh, uh, recognition, I think, but is one of those that if you bring up to horror fans, they're like, wait, yeah, I did see that. That is awesome. And they're like, wait, yeah, that was really cool. I need, like, I forgot about that movie. Frailty. Oh, uh,
0: yeah. But- Oh yeah. yeah, Bill
2: Paxton. Bill Paxton directed *Frailty*. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I wish he directed more.
0: McConaughey, you know. Powers, Booth, just uh, McConaughey, yes. just putting in that.
2: I, when I watch *Frailty*, all I can think of is this is the inspiration that McConaughey brought into *True Detective*.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: Like it just feels like he. This is where he's drawing from, for for anybody who knows *True Detective*. Um, but no, *Frailty* is great. I'm not going to really get into it um, because. Anything I kind of tell you about it might spoil a bits of it, but mm-hmm. really good slow burn psychological horror, but maybe not psychological horror. Maybe some, there's actually something some hits of
0: supernatural.
2: Yeah. And the play there, the way it plays that way, it walks that line is so good, but Bill Paxson was a way, way underrated director. If he had this potentiality in his pocket, mm-hmm. you know, so just, it's just a great film number 5 uh another f- another uh i'm going to say horror a psychological drama horror kind of thing going on um with possibly a hint of supernatural kind of reference uh it's from hell uh it's it's one of my favorite johnny depp movies um and i'm not a giant johnny depp fan i think he phones in his too far too often mm-hmm. uh but no from is just a lot of like uh, it's fun to watch it uh, as a, as a as a true detective and a Jack the Ripper, you know, as any true detective fan will say, is Jack the Ripper somebody you 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 know about? Mm-hmm. It at least brought more attention to the thing, if if not accurate at all about the events that happened. It, it at least uh, presented a new angle on the topic, and it was uh, pretty interesting. It's all in all what it, it its storyline it goes for and stuff. But I am a big fan of the movie.
0: Oh, uh, and it makes very. Me, and it's actually a much better adaptation than the original graphic novel because I tried reading Alan Moore's Hell, yes. and it's like no, I the movie did a way better job of it.
2: I agree. I I love me some Alan Moore. I will. Def- he is so good, but I do believe that sometimes this because he hates every adaptation basically that ever got made of his stuff. Mm-hmm. And I, I disagree with him sometimes. I'm, like, I'm sorry, Ellen. I think this this hit well. Sometimes you have to change things for cinema. And yep. I think it did it well. So yeah, no, I'm a big fan of uh, From Hell. Obviously, it's in my top five. Mm-hmm. Um, number four. And this one, this was one I, I originally wrote down as number one. I ended up having to kick it down because I love this movie to death. And I think it needs to be more well-respected by uh, not just horror fans, but just uh, movie fans in general. But realistically, when the push came to shove, the the next three, I just, I watch more and I enjoy more. But number four is Delisro Moteros. I butchered his name there. I apologize. (laughs) Delisro Belturos. I did it again. Guillermo Del Toro. It's a Del Toro. One of the Del Toros. (laughs) Any of them. The Devil's Backbone.
0: Ah, yeah. Yeah.
2: To Uh, this day, I have still never seen a more beautifully shot ghost. Every time you watch a movie and it looks like an actor is underwater because they're floating and their hair is drifting mm-hmm. you can thank Del Toro because he invented that film technique for this movie It's in Spanish and it's so much better if you watch it in Spanish with uh, English subtitles the I'm I'm a fan of dubbing don't get me wrong I mm-hmm. I I think it's you lose something by reading you 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 lose some of the acting if you just read your your movie too much um but it was we all know a bad dub can ruin a film don't watch don't watch a dub of this film Ooh,
0: okay yeah cuz i've only seen the spanish dub and the subtitles yeah. so
2: just watch the subtitles the, and I, I, i'm not saying it has a bad dub or anything like that um i think dubbing can work i just think that you do lose tone sometimes uh with with dubbing dubbing's basically when it's done perfectly it's it's fine if but you can mess with tone you can mess with tempo. Obviously, certain languages just will never match up their their mouth movements. It just won't work. If they're a, if they're not a dramatic language, like it's just not gonna work. Um Spanish isn't a dramatic language, so their mouths are not gonna match. Um I think it's a much better film to watch, subtitled, personally. Mm-hmm. And I'm again, and I'm not a person who says that often. Uh it's just a phenomenal film. It's beautifully shot. It's a perfect example of why he's Del Toro's one of the greatest directors alive. Um the story he tells is just great. And it's terrifying at points. It's it's just it's just an amazing film. Probably the best film on my list. Um, just not my favorite.
0: Yeah, yeah. I mean, I I'd probably lean more towards Kronos, but no, Devil's Backbone is still a really, really good ghost story movie from Del Toro.
2: Yes. Yeah. All right. Number three, 13 Ghosts. I loved that movie when it came out. I defended that movie against all the haters through about most of the, the 2000s. And only recently am I seeing people be like, dude, 13 Ghosts was awesome. The kills were great. The effects were great. Did you know that you can, on the DVD, there's actually backstory for you ghosts? So I'm like, yeah. I've been saying that for 20 years. <laughs> I love this movie. I got it originally on. Um, we rented it. Me and my friends rented it from Blockbuster. Uh, the Blockbuster rental did not have the DVD special features or anything like that on it because they tended not to. Mm. Um, I bought it on VHS because that was still a thing in two thousand and one. Yep. Um, I had it for the longest time, and then we we found I found it for like a cheap at like a used movie store like blockbuster had in like a bin for like three bucks i'm like i I actually am willing to pay to get this on dvd i think the quality could be better and we bought it and it had the special features and we one day just decided let's look at the special features what else they got and we discovered in the special features of the dvd every single of the 13 ghosts has a backstory and it's explained and it's amazing it's like I, i want to see more movies like thirteen ghosts it's interesting the the house was cool. the soundtrack that trap uh the the well, i can't remember the name of the song, but it's amazing. Uh, I listen to it I pull it up sometimes It's like a song from thirteen ghosts, and my search engine finds it for me it's great um I love everything about that like the acting too is way better to me for us for this movie uh-huh how how in the world you got Monk in this movie. <laughs> Shaloub, Tony Shaloub. You got Tony Shaloub. But I'd like to point out that this was Tony Shaloub pre-monk. This was before they discovered that he was a great actor. This is when he had come from Wings, okay. per se. So like Tony Shaloub, Shannon Elizabeth is this is probably her best film, uh, most acted uh and I, I'm I'm not saying she's perfect in it to be anything, mm-hmm. she's okay, um, but like.
0: And Matthew, uh, Matthew Lillard also, I know, I believe is in this. And right? I was, I was, I was saving that up. And, and yeah. then there's also
2: the thing: if you if you haven't got on the Matthew Lillard train, hop on board. It's going to leave you behind. <laughs> he he's amazing <laughs> in everything he does. He brings an energy like he is literally. I I I, I say that a lot. Like his actors are underappreciated. He truly was. Like he gets he gets no credit because he's typecast in the few things he's in. Shaggy mm-hmm. stuff like that. He is way better of an actor than he people give him credit for. Even if he is a bit. I don't want to say one-dimensional, but like he isn't is the thing. If you actually look at his career, he is one of the best parts of 13 Ghosts. I think, to be honest with you, the ghosts and their the, the effects that they have is the best part. And there's something for everyone. There's a big tall guy uh, who just looks awesome. There's a insane guy with his head in a cage. There's a chick who's just naked covered in scars. Like there's something for everyone in this movie. I highly suggest it if you've never seen it, or if you only saw it back in the day and you didn't think it was that good. Rewatch it; it's better than you thought. Mm-hmm. Also, a remake.
0: Yeah. Yep. Yeah. The, that was from uh, the Dark Castle Productions that were remaking all of William Castle's old movies. I I actually did enjoy the the House on Haunted Hill remake.
2: Oh yeah, no, another great, yeah. great remake. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, no, Thirteen Ghosts, solid, solid film. Highly suggest uh, everybody go out and go watch it even if you've already seen it. Number two, it's Ocean's Eleven. It's...
0: Right, yeah, yep.
2: It's prob. This is going to be painful, and you're not going to agree, Mac. It's probably the greatest, heist movie of all time. And people don't want to admit it just because it's got George Clooney and Brad Pitt in it.
0: I, I would say I wouldn't put it out there just because I think it's just so overly... Uh, I don't know. These are all like, these are huge names and it's just like relying on, I think it's like really just, a, it relies too much on its star power. Like the heist itself, I wasn't impressed with, but just the idea that they fooled
2: the casino into thinking that there was a heist. You don't think that's yeah. impressive? Uh, the that Because here's the thing, here's with heist movies, because we could do a whole thing on heist. We could have a top 10 of heist things. So it's either... What what is the what is it? It's got the what's the, the best heist movie? Probably the one with the sound. Baba, it's got a B. Starts of B or R. raba Baba, something like that. Do you know uh, remember talking about? The one where they can't break into the thing because it's the, the the bank has a, a a detector for sound, so the whole heist it has to be perfectly quiet. Do you
0: uh, know what I'm talking about? i I I know exactly. What we, I know what you're talking about. But I just can't think of the name of it. Like what Rumble Tumble or something like that. Rafifi. Oh, okay. It's Rafifi. Rafifi. Right. I don't
2: know how Off was coming into that, but... Okay, so Bob Rafifi is probably the best heist movie of all time if you were to ask like a, an actual like film critic.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: However, I submit to you that the, Ocean's Eleven is actually a better film. Be, and the only reason that I, anyone has ever presented to me that it might not be a better film always just comes down to the pretension that, well, it's got a lot of leading actors in it, so it can't be... No, that's not a good enough reason. the 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 heist is surprised. The first time I ever watched it, I didn't know that that's what was going on. They they did it very well, like they they tricked the viewer the way they tricked. They made the viewer into the person they were heisting, which is great storytelling. Every little thing that they were doing was that wink and a nod that we were actually doing something else. The guy wasn't looking into the 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 camera feed, so he could. Just watch them. He was looking at the camera feed to feed them the false image. Like, all the little things that were happening were happening for a completely different reason than you thought they were happening for. It was great. It's amazing. I submit to you, I actually think it probably is one of the greatest ice movies. It's not the greatest ice movie of all time. I'm willing to have this debate about it, but that's honestly my opinion on the matter.
0: Uh, No, fair enough. And But, man, that cockney accent on Don Cheadle. That's just, uh, that was bad. <laughs> uh,
2: Don Cheadle, he's just he he's done like five good things and just a, a metric ass ton of not good things. He also loves accents. Like he has a weird accent in a lot of his movies. I don't understand yeah. it. It's What's weird the, because like it's just it's just a weird choice. I don't hate it though because I've heard of worse Cockney accents from men who are from that area. Because <laughs> like, Cockney is a is a joke ac- I, I yeah. p- apologize to all our Cockney fans. Cognitive scene is seen as a joke accent in Britain. So, how do you think it's going to be portrayed to Americans?
0: Yeah, yeah. But I so. did, I did enjoy the older guard, like on here. Like I enjoyed Carl uh, Reiner was great. Elliot Gould oh, was great. Amazing. Yeah,
2: was amazing. Love it. So, uh, number one, find out my list. Finish it out. Is one of my favorite comedies of all time. It's, I struggle sometimes to say it's not my favorite comedy of all time, but it probably is. I think that I have to say that it's, it's definitely probably be one of my, it's probably in my top two, if not top three. I'll say that without going into too much detail and talking about 20 other films. It's Super Troopers. (laughs) I just love the movie. (laughs)
0: I have a soft spot for it just because it was great seeing Brian Cox completely out of type for this film. Like I would not (laughs) expect him in a million years to play this kind of character. No, no.
2: And uh, I've actually talked to um, the actor who played rabbit. Uh, I met him at a con. We had a conversation about the movie. Um, He was actually drunk in that scene. (laughs) It's not like Brian Cox is like a method actor. He has to, but apparently that scene came at the end of a really long day of shooting and they kind of had a celebration and they were drinking all day and having a couple beers and, and all that. And lo and behold, they're like, okay, we have to do the next scene. And turns out Brian Cox is wasted. They're like, well, I guess he would be. So let's just do it. So, yeah, he was blitzed out of his mind during that scene. When he was talking, that's not scripted. He didn't have the script. He They just... He was supposed to spend like a half an hour or something like that reading the script. He apparently didn't. He just was drinking. So when you like all the things he says is just Brian Cox being drunk <laughs> and it's hilarious. I love it. I love everything about that movie. It's so fun. I love what they did by turning the idea that cops can be fun because, mm-hmm. you know, that's a, that's a, to be honest with you, that's something we don't have today. They're not in general. Our, our culture right now is not seeing cops as a fun nah people uh i'm from the i'm from the backwoods where we saw a cop he was pulling you over because you were speeding or you know he was going to give you a hassle so uh so i remember going to seeing super troopers with my friends and just being like well that's fun it's just a fun note that they're 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 having fun with this like we're having fun with this kind of thing so i i really enjoy it um it's also great to just know those are those are legit that group is just friends oh who've yeah been yep making movies since uh you know College, so I'm uh, I'm a big fan. I'm just a big fan of the movie in general.
0: Ah, g- g- good selection. Yeah, I I I I appreciate Super Troopers just just for Brian Cox. That's just uh, that's all you need. That's the only convincing I need to watch the movie is just seeing Brian Cox in a comedic <laughs> role. He's so good. Uh, right, no, good, good selections overall. All right. Well, uh, uh, okay, my honorable mentions for 2001. Uh, first honorable mention: Jay and Silent Bob Strike Back. Uh, at the time I thought this was a great way to say farewell to these two characters, just them ending, just kicking everybody's ass at the very end. Uh, just a great cameos, uh, a lot of in- references. Like if you follow this view askew universe, you'll get a lot out of it. Uh, the next yeah, one.
2: Movie- I, uh, I, I was gonna say, I'm, I was a fan of the movie. It just was that, that thing where I'm like, eh, it was more of a, you're making a movie cause you can make a movie. I just, <laughs> I preferred his older work. That was kind of the first step towards the direction I didn't like his movies going. Also,
0: Yeah. Yeah. I'll, I'll give you that. Uh, sure. next one, uh, a thriller that a lot of people might not remember. Along came a spider with Morgan Freeman. Uh, mm. interesting little mystery. Uh, and gosh, uh, let me look up the one actor, the one who plays the kidnapper. Cause he is like one of my yeah. all time favorite character actors.
2: I, I, uh, I, I I almost put a long-came spider on my list of uh, honorable mentions because it was one of those where like it was really really good. Yep. Like it was a long-came spider was one of the f- the films after seven that made me realize that like Morgan Freeman wasn't just a one-hit wonder because I hadn't been exposed to him that much. All in all, mm-hmm. if, obviously, besides that and Shawshank Redemption. Um, so yeah, like it's just. Susan who is it? Naomi Jud, not, no not Naomi Judd. Um uh what is her name? The lead. Uh
0: there's uh Monica Potter, who is the female lead.
2: Yes, Monica Potter. Sorry. I was thinking yep. of what was I thinking of? I don't know. But uh no, she she was also really good, I thought.
0: Oh, no, and Michael Wincott, he was the one that plays the the guy who disguises himself as the teacher. He, oh, yeah. Michael Wincott, yeah, I mean, he was great in Count of Monte Cristo, he was great in The Crow, so you've got Morgan Freeman, and you've got a great character actor, Michael Wincott, so that I enjoyed. Uh, and yeah. these next two movies, these were kind of like, you know, the, the Dante's Inferno and Volcano of its time, you know, The Prestige and The Illusionist. You had the score with Robert yep. De Niro and uh, Edward Norton, and then you had Heist with... Gene Hackman and Danny DeVito. Yeah, so I,
2: uh, I just wanted—I wanted to love the heist the way I love the score. I just couldn't.
0: And I'm a sucker for David Mamet dialogue, so it had that going for me.
2: That's fair. It's good. Don't get me wrong. I just, oh yeah. And I and I love Gene Hackman. I still I I I have a I have a bet with myself. I have to find a movie Gene Hackman's in that I don't like, and so far <laughs> I haven't been able to do it. <laughs> I don't care anything about basketball and I like the Hoosiers. Hoosiers, yep. (laughs) Like, I I don't, like, it's one of those things. If you can make me like about care or enjoy something I don't care about at all, congratulations. (laughs) So, yeah, Gene Ackman's just one of those actors where I like every movie he's in.
0: Oh, yeah, like, just a solid talent. All right, now into the the, the proper ten, uh, proper uh, top ten. Uh, number ten, made uh, directed by Jon Favreau. This was his follow up film, The Swingers, which I think is just a fun little goofy quasi mob movie with uh, Favreau and uh, Vince Vaughn just going on there. This little side job for the the Don played by Peter Falk. It, it, it's a it's a good follow up to to Swingers. I, I actually quite enjoyed it.
2: I've never seen it. I uh, I like Swingers and I like some of the stuff I've ever done, but I've never been, I've never sought him out, mm-hmm. his movies out. So maybe I'll have to check that out. Yeah. Uh, all
0: right. Uh, number nine, uh, not my favorite uh, Jean Pierre Jeunet film, but I can see why people do love it. Amelie, uh, just such. Uh, uplifting, enlightening. Uh, this is a, a film where you can just actually, this is a friend of mine, Rory, uh, who was, you know, with x Studios. He uh, said this film, this is the movie you watch on a Sunday afternoon with a good meal. Uh, this is just a, a warm, uh, just fuzzy feeling movie, a r- romantic comedy. And it's yeah. just told with such a great visual flair.
2: I have said before, I think it's one of the best romantic comedies of all time. Mm-hmm. And that's not a genre I tend to enjoy.
0: Oh no, me neither. I'm not a big romantic romantic comedy film, but no, Amelie. I you can still enjoy it even if you're not big on romance. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, number eight. Uh, this uh, movie just popped out in the, the aftermath of the, the matrix Swordfish, starring Hugh Jackman and Hugh, Halle Berry and John Travolta
2: and two specific aspects of Halle Berry's anatomy.
0: <laughs> yeah. I think that was the first time we actually saw them and you know what, yes. they they're, they're magnificent.
2: No, I'll just say this. Like don't, don't ever separate that movie from Halle Berry's chest because oh. and I, I don't hate the movie. I don't love it. It's not going to be on any list of mine, but like I don't, don't ever assume that that movie isn't popular, and we're talking about it now for any other reason than, <laughs> than they paid Halle Berry half a million dollars for to do to, 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 a nude scene that was a topless scene that was maybe five seconds long.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: You go, girl!
0: <laughs> wow, you make that money. All right, yeah. uh, number number seven: uh, the movie that people just couldn't get away from, Shrek. Uh, This movie was just everywhere in 2001.
2: Hey now, you're an (laughs) all-star. I'm not going to do more. We'll get sued.
0: I I resented Smash Mouth after that. It's like, I can't get away from this song. Go away. But no, we've talked about this movie before, and it's like John Lithgow as Lord Farquaad, just one of the great animated characters of all time.
2: I love a movie about not judging people based on the way they look. Whose main villain everyone judges because he's short. short. <laughs> I love that. I also will say that the first time I, re- I remember I was at a buddy's house we were watching it, because uh, I didn't see it in theaters because again it was presented as a child's film, and I wasn't. Mm-hmm. I've already talked about it. I don't. I I grew out of watching those kind of things uh, at a young age, and uh, I was at a friend's friend. He goes, "No, dude, it's funny. Like you'll like it. We watched it, and I was laughing. And I was having a great time. Everything was all right." And and then there was the scene where they get to the castle and there's the little diorama of like little puppets that talk and stuff. And it was, that made me full on crack up laughing. But the point that broke me was when they were torturing the gingerbread man, not my buttons, (laughs) not my gumdrop buttons. And I lost it. I'm like, that's hilarious. (laughs) That is hilarious. And for those, because it always, I, I feel it's, it's one of those little tangents of information that I, I think is actually fairly well known at this point. But in case you don't know, the movie originally was supposed to not have Michael Myers as Shrek's voice. It was supposed to have uh, uh, Chris Farley, oh, wow. and it was supposed Chris to be Farley stop motion.
0: Maybe. It was supposed to yes. be stop motion animation. Yeah,
2: But uh, it, uh, sadly, uh, Chris Farley died and they had to recast because all the, vo- the voice work uh, actually wasn't recorded yet most of it was though uh so they they did a quick recast of uh uh mike myers they changed it because they no longer had time to do the um the motion uh the stuff they'd have to do for claymation so they did animation obviously it worked out it's still probably one of the best animated movies of all time um it was amazing i've you know nothing nothing bad it was one of those who stumbled into greatness but for anyone who cares to know this for free right now you can go on YouTube and find the audio and some drawings of Chris Farley as Shrek doing the yep. voice, running it. And it's very weird, but <laughs> very cool. Yep. I highly suggest you do it.
0: Number six, Monsters, Inc. Uh, merely just on the strength of the chemistry between John Goodman and Billy Crystal, because those two just had it. Those two were like <laughs> probably some of my favorite animated duos of all time. I,
2: again, I'm not, a, I didn't really get into a lot of Pixar and, and animation and stuff like that, but I, I do find it interesting because I saw a link recently about how it's really just a, a, a subtle jab at corporate capital. Like it's an anti-capitalist movie because all the companies, they know, like it suggested that the companies know that scaring children is a source of energy but making them like happy is a better source but they don't want to do that so they want to make so they force this impose this this structure on everyone and make them have to be these evil people and it's this mm-hmm. whole allegory for like capitalism something. and it's just like
0: oh no you huh. think of, like debt collection and you know going yeah. back on people who can't pay back loans yeah it's
2: yeah so i'm just like it's one of those things that i'm like i don't think that's what they intended when it was made and i don't even know if you really if it's accurate. But I was, I just saw that article recently and I'm like, Oh, that's interesting. That's an interesting take on that movie. Yeah. All
0: right. Uh, number five, uh, probably, uh, one of my favorite martial arts movies to come out that year, iron monkey. And, uh, this is the one that was actually produced by Quentin Tarantino. And you can mm-hmm. definitely tell that he obviously had a hand in, the subtitles and translation of the film yes. because just some of the dialogue is absolutely Tarantino-esque. Oh, like yeah. Subtitles.
2: I remember the first time I watched it, I, I thought we had the, like, somebody had fake made the the, <laughs> the subtitles, because I've, st- I've done that before. I've, d- I've downloaded or f- stumbled across a foreign film, and it's just somebody, some loon who just typed out their own subtitles. It's obviously not true. Yeah, I thought that was kind of what was happening
0: because like, thank you. There's no way they just said that. <laughs> no, no. <laughs> And just the the fight on the bamboo stalks is just uh, that's that is that movie
2: like, mm-hmm. um, that's Donnie Yen man <laughs> oh, pre
0: Ip Man Donnie Yen yep all right mine number four uh, this was the first the first full movie I saw with Jet Li in the the leading performance Kiss of the Dragon
2: <laughs> I'm sorry <laughs> <laughs> oh wow that uh I guess the bar was pretty low to improve on that <laughs> one for you then
0: really you, you're not
2: you're I, not big on it or i'm not big on kiss on like kiss of the dragon for a jet Li film i just think that like he did so much better stuff in his career i actually think the one is a better jet lee film it's definitely got more jelly in it mm-hmm. <laughs> oh, i don't hate the, kiss of the, the dragon let me be clear i just I, I am very surprised it is this low on your list or high or uh, whatever you want to say
0: oh it was my it was like my first full film of seeing him like this is like yeah. the first time i saw him and i was like wow this is actually pretty impressive
2: all right, I can get that. I guess uh, this uh, nostalgia of it all, and the—I yeah. mean, he is an impressive martial artist, and that's very much on display. So I'll give you that. I'll give you that. Uh,
0: and just the trick with the pool table, uh, just kicking uh, <laughs> the ball out of the slot, and then just like right between the eyes—that was just uh, yep. that was a pretty sweet shot.
2: Yeah, that man's right, dead.
0: Uh, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, I am my number three. A Knight's Tale, uh, starring Heath Ledger, and you got Paul uh, Paul Bettany as uh, Chaucer. You've got. Uh, the, the big guy from the, the Full Monty. This, and this is the movie that really showed me that, okay, Heath Ledger is a star. This is the movie that really just made me realize that, okay, this guy's actually got real talent. Oh, yeah.
2: No, 100%. It's definitely that. But I'd like to also shout out that you didn't mention, Alan uh, uh Pain. Lots of pain. Uh, and also, <laughs> you're the only human being on planet Earth who would describe the actor, the quote-unquote <laughs> big guy, from the Full Monty and not... Robert Baratheon from Game of
0: Throne. Hey, at least I didn't say he was Fred Flintstone from the Flintstone sequel. I'm, gonna, I'm just going to log off now. I'm <laughs> logging off, and you
2: can't talk to me for a whole week. How do you feel about that? We don't talk about that movie. You know this. It's against the law. Remember the movie laws? It's against them. <laughs> <laughs>
0: No, and here's a shocker: I've never seen the full episode of Game of Thrones, so there you go. Hey, people can
2: complain all they want about <laughs> the last season, and I'm not saying it's the greatest thing ever to put to film. It wasn't. That there's no way that you can ignore the fact that it's still, oh, I don't know, what six, six of the greatest seasons of TV possibly ever. There's only like three other movie TV series that can compete with it. Mm-hmm. So, like, it's it's amazing, and you should watch it. And that's ignoring if you haven't read the books. Which if you haven't, please do. They're fantastic.
0: All right. No daddy. <sighs>
2: Either way, not about uh, the Night's Tale, but Night's Tale is amazing. I love what they did with the music, incorporating mm-hmm. new music into old, you know, the time appropriate. Yeah. It's just it's a it's a fantastic film and you know, stuff like that is just more proof that, you know, Hollywood really lost a, a great star, you mm-hmm. know, in Ledger. So
0: My number two, Training Day, uh, with uh, Denzel Washington and Ethan Hawke. Uh, That was so cool to be on my list. (laughs) Denzel just absolutely captivating in his role. Uh, Ethan Hawke, actually, I believe him as being a good everyman. Uh, The scene in the bathtub has forever stuck with me, just because that to me is like one of the best suspense sequences in film.
2: Yeah, I think the there's, it's just, it's probably the best cop movie since Heat. If you want to call Heat a oh. cop movie. No, yeah, I can see that. Yeah. Um, it changed the. I mean, because it also is in one of those, it's one of, it's not the first film to do it where the cops aren't necessarily the altruistic good guys. Mm-hmm. But it definitely presented police officers in a very interesting light that not a lot of films, specifically of that level, you know, big budget summer, you know, I don't want to say blockbusters, but you know, yeah. summer powerhouse kind of films were doing at the time. Like, and I and I, I do agree that Ethan Hawke, like, kudos to him to being able to portray that that character and going through all those situations. But like, you don't talk about that movie unless you're talking about Denzel Washington because he he owns that movie.
0: Oh yeah, yep. And like, a lot of the side and the the cameo appearances from Snoop Dogg, Dr. Mm-hmm. Dre, Scott Glenn's in this one again. Like, geez, mm-hmm. like Scott Glenn, man.
2: Yeah. <laughs> Scott Glenn, man, he'll show <laughs> up. He'll show up and put in more effort than you ever wished. Yeah, so good.
0: I uh, am my number one enemy at the gates, starring Jude Law and Ed Harris as rival snipers.
2: Yep yeah, it's, it's an amazing film. It's uh, one of my buddies. is a World War II nut. He loves. He does everything except in like reenactment stuff. Mm. And he, it's his favorite movie.
0: And even like uh, Rachel Weiss is badass in this movie, too, is uh, she's a good sniper on her own. And you've got Bob Hoskins as Nikita Khrushchev. And it's like, I that is just perfect casting right there. Yes,
2: that was perfect casting. Although I will point out, I love how you made sure to use the word ass. Will Rachel Weiss in the movie? Because this is, of course, the movie we you see your butt in.
0: Yep. Yep. <laughs> I'm fine, but it is.
2: It's a magnificent but But no, it's an amazing, amazing, amazing movie. And the, it's weird, too, because it's somewhat real. Like, it's based, the, the Hollywood-based, you know, big quotation marks around yeah. the word, based on a true story of rival snipers. Uh, it's very loosely based. And beyond the fact that it's based on two, the fact that there were rival snipers, that's pretty much the only truth in the movie. But it is phenomenal, and the, some of the shots they do is just the, the way the comp, shot composition works. The scene in the fountain with all the dead guys—that's amazing.
0: Oh god, yeah, those, the siege of Leningrad is just probably yeah. one of the best opening scenes, and you could ask for in a movie.
2: I mean, the idea, like the the the, the, the ability to convey information, like he, that guy has the gun, you have the bullets,
0: mm-hmm.
2: like stuff, little stuff like that, like that's actually accurate.
0: <laughs> oh, and uh, they were retreating. Oh, and the 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 people uh, waiting at the the. Uh, the lines were waiting for the retreating soldiers so that they can shoot them. That's like, yep. wow, that's, that's true too.
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah. The commissars uh, shooting uh, people fleeing just to make sure that they didn't. Yeah, no, it's, it's a lot more gritty than I think a film starring those actors and made for that budget really probably like they, I think they got away with a lot of stuff in that movie and it's just, it is a really good movie. And you know what? I'm looking at my list. I, I, I regret not having it at least as, at least as an honorable mention because mm-hmm. that really is a great film.
0: Yeah. All right. So those were our selections for the, the year of 2001. Uh, definitely go ahead and let us know what some of your favorites are in the comments below. Cause I'm sure there's, there's plenty that we missed out on. I don't know maybe I mean, if you're in India, there's probably films that were Bollywood <laughs> productions. That, yeah. Know, I
2: mean, I mean, of- I mean, it's absurd that neither of us mentioned Godzilla moth or King Ghidorah giant monsters all out of tax. I mean, how did we get away with that?
0: Yeah. Uh, and so uh until but then we'll sign off here until next time this is mackenzie lambert
2: and john cleveland
0: have a good day folks bye now on digital academy award winner christopher walken christina ricci and zach brath star in percy vs. goliath Based on true events, Percy vs. Goliath is the thrilling story of a small-town farmer's court battle against one of the largest agricultural corporations. Directed by Clark Johnson, buy or rent Percy vs. Goliath tonight. Rated PG-13 from Paramount Pictures. Want to double your chances of winning? Tell me your favorite Christopher Walken impersonator. I will announce the winners on Friday, May 14th. And that wraps up this episode of Mac in the Movies. Thanks for listening. As mentioned earlier, part two of Josh Becker will drop on Friday, May 21st. Until then, this is Mackenzie Lambert of Mac in the Movies, signing off.
1: There was actually probably the most fun that, you know, was uh, there was this circus scene that was much bigger in the script in in Darkman. They ended up, it's a short scene in the movie with Liam Neeson, but it was uh, this, this whole big deal and they set up this whole circus and uh, I basically hung out that day with Sam and Ivan Ramey and Liam Neeson. What just started in the movies was this big <laughs> <Irish> <laughs> guy and uh, it was actually two days of shooting and it was really warm nice days and we were just having fun so uh,
0: that's, uh, that must have been just a
1: stray time. memory of hanging around with liam neeson <laughs> uh, i never met him again in my life <laughs> but i thought he was as nice as could possibly be I didn't. I don't even know if I thought you know like this big Irish guy is he going to go on in movies? I I probably (laughs) didn't thought not.